1969, Southern California suffered one of the largest oil spills in history, prompting national outrage and setting the stage for some of the country's most important environmental laws. Yet a critical part of the Pacific coast still remains vulnerable to drilling and other threats. Today, we're going to explore how decades of work by the Chumash people could lead to the country's first tribally-led national marine sanctuary. I'm Jennifer Eric, and this is The Secret Lives of Parks. Channel Islands National Park preserves a chain of five remarkable islands off the coast of Southern California, as well as the ocean habitat that immediately surrounds them. This archipelago in San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara counties is part of a much broader marine ecosystem. Cold waters from the north meet the subtropical waters of the Santa Barbara Channel here, creating one of the most biodiverse coastal regions in the world. Sometimes referred to as the Galapagos of North America, this area of the Pacific is home to a variety of plants and animals that simply can't be found anywhere else. Visitors marvel at the rocky cliffs, the sea caves, the trails to wild and breathtaking views. It's a special place that has earned a spot on many bucket lists, including mine. The Channel Islands and surrounding area also have a long and rich cultural history. It's where some of the oldest evidence of human life has been discovered in North America, and it's the traditional home of the Chumash and Tongva people, seafaring tribes who traverse these waters in elegant plank boats known as tomals. Today, some 6,000 to 8,000 Chumash people live in the region in seven designated tribes and several other affiliated groups. Several thousand Tongva people also belong to two main tribes in the state. For decades, the Chumash people have been spearheading formal efforts at the federal level to protect the region from an array of dangers. There's always an ongoing threat to our, our area and our territory. Our elder, Roberta Cordero, she always says it's our obligation. It's tribal people's obligation, you know, that we have to protect our sites until, until we're not here anymore. It's our obligation that we do this as long as we're alive. That's Violet Sage Walker chairwoman for the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. Walker and other members of the council have proposed creating a Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary, which would preserve 156 miles of coastline and about 7,600 square miles of some of the most important ocean waters in the world. National Marine Sanctuaries are federally protected areas managed by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, known by the acronym NOAA, similar to the way national park sites are managed by the National Park Service. But the long fight to protect this part of the Pacific Ocean predates the creation of NOAA and began as a response to a devastating disaster. In January 1969, an explosion at an oil well sent 3 million gallons of crude oil into the Santa Barbara Channel, covering beaches in black ooze, killing thousands of birds, and devastating marine life in the region. The spill covered 30 miles of coastline, and oil continued to leak for many months after the explosion through ruptures in the ocean floor created by the disaster. 
different environmental organizations and NGOs were formed. The Clean Air, Clean Water Act, all these different acts were formed in Congress. Our elder, Palula Kutz, who was at the beaches during the oil spill, and I asked her what she was doing there, and she said that she was praying for the animals that were being saved, praying for their souls and praying for their health and praying for them to survive. And I thought about that picture of like our elders and them doing ceremony over these animals covered in oil. You know, the 1969 oil spills, one of the third largest in the world. And that's where we began this journey. Walker has been leading efforts to create the monument since her father, Northern Chumash tribal chief Fred Collins, passed away in October of last year. It was my dad that was the spokesperson and the organizer, and he was the driving force behind coalescing this group of people that wanted the National Marine Sanctuary to be extended all the way to the Channel Islands for the past 40 years. But it wasn't until the Shumash people got involved that the support began to increase with momentum, increase with backers, increase with local electeds. If the coalition succeeds and NOAA creates the marine sanctuary, it will be the first tribally-led designation of its kind. Everything has opened the path for this to be priority number one. It's ready to go. And we've done all the hard work. We've done all the heavy lifting. It's really well researched, really well thought out. I think the level of importance and the level of outreach that we've done is reflected by how much support we have. Noah recommended moving forward with the proposal late last year, and a public comment period earlier this year generated more than 22,000 comments, the overwhelming majority of which were in support of the sanctuary. They're going to be looking at all those comments. I think they're mad at me, actually, because they have to read all those comments. (laughs) I feel like maybe I should send them some flowers or like a sympathy card for Noah, (laughs) Noah staff, a shout out to the Noah staff that has to read all those comments. They said that they wanted broad community support. So we have, you know, everybody from an entire class of third graders that submitted drawings (laughs) all the way up to, you know, like the vice president and, you know, our senators, our congressmen. We have support all over from every walk of life. To say that Walker's mission is personal would be an understatement. Her family history and cultural ties to the region run deep. I'm like a seventh generation beekeeper and we all lived at the ocean. We all fished and they hunted there. They were farmers. They had apple orchards. My dad walked there every single morning, basically of his life. And he actually now resides in that part of the ocean. You know, we did our ceremony there and we put my dad there and that's, you know, where he wanted to be. Her home of Avila Beach is part of the coastal region that would be protected by the National Marine Sanctuary. That's one of our biggest village sites. And who wouldn't want to live in Avila? They estimate there could have been 10,000 Chumash people living there. And the resources were so abundant that we had one of the most advanced trading and spiritual systems and astrology and education and builders and craftsmen. To the south, another important highlight of the proposed sanctuary is a biodiverse area that serves as a spiritual gateway for the Chumash people. You know, we also have Point Conception, which, you know, is our western gate. 
in historical stories, that's where all people, regardless of, you know, your faith and where you're from, that's where we believe all people leave this planet and enter into the next world, into the setting sun over the Western Pacific and into the next life. And so we believe that's where the souls exit this world. And our elders occupied Point Conception to prevent it from being developed by the gas companies and stuff um, back in the 70s. And the elders are still here. They're still telling our story and they want to tell their story for the sanctuary. Walker mentions another important site in Morro Bay that would be part of the proposed sanctuary, a place where she's been carrying on a mission of her late father's to bring a culturally significant rock formation back to its former glory. Mora Rock, which is named Lei Samu. That's the Shimash name. It means the sacred one, the one that stands in a sacred place. At one time, that was completely surrounded by water and considerably bigger. And you might wonder how come a rock would have been bigger. And that was because the Army Corps of Engineers in their infinite wisdom blew up half the rock to make the breakwaters. So our sacred rock, which we consider as important as one of the seven wonders of the world, it was a spiritual place that the Shimash were caretakers and guardians of. It was blown up and my dad had asked them to um, put the rock back together. (laughs) Walker's father, Tribal Chief Fred Collins, spoke with the Army Corps of Engineers about six years ago, asking them to reconstruct the original formation, an effort Walker refers to as Operation Reunite the Rock. Just a month after her father's passing last year, Walker received a phone call from a representative of the Army Corps of Engineers as she was in the midst of planning a large community memorial. She discussed an arrangement with the Corps to recover part of the breakwater and create a seamount next to the sacred rock, bringing some of those lost pieces back together. Walker sees this arrangement as an important step as with all efforts to preserve the history and culture of the Shumash people. This is making our people whole again, heal wounds and make things right. And part of that is, you know, having the Marine Sanctuary with a tribal-led nomination. They're all important. The beauty and significance of so many of these places have motivated many people to devote hours of their time to preserving the region. But to Walker, the most important aspect of the proposed sanctuary is something much simpler. The thing that is the most exciting for me is the name. The name, Shumash Heritage, when people around the world close their eyes and you say Hawaiians, you have a picture in your mind of Whatever you picture when you think of Hawaiian people, whether it's their like beautiful like dresses or their clothing or their flowers or their islands, their language, their songs, you have this picture in your head of a Hawaiian and people don't have that picture of the Shimash. This is our opportunity to bring that forward to the world and show the world who we are and share our stories and share our songs and share our history and our oral traditions and our faith and our prayers and our sacred places. And our elder Palula um, said that if you don't share why things are so important, then people won't know why to protect them. There's not enough of us left to protect everything and there's not enough of us left to do all the work. So we need partners and we need to explain the importance of these areas to our partners so that they will continue to protect them when we're not here.
The waters in this part of Southern California aren't just culturally significant. They're also extremely ecologically important for marine life and for people. If we just did more to protect our oceans, our oceans will be doing more to protect us in the long run. That's Sarah Barmeyer, Deputy Vice President of Conservation Programs at the National Parks Conservation Association. Her expertise is in ocean conservation, and she has a passion for protecting underwater habitats, such as marine sanctuaries and marine national monuments, that most of us will never be able to see with our own eyes. She likes to emphasize that regardless of whether we live near the coast or even like doing things like swimming or snorkeling, we all depend on the sea to breathe. Oceans generate about half of the world's oxygen, and a billion people, including millions of Americans, depend on healthy oceans for their livelihoods. Conserving America's most valuable underwater treasures, to me, it it doesn't matter if it's a national park or a national marine sanctuary. These places really preserve biodiversity. They protect endangered species. They provide numerous recreational and economic opportunities. And most importantly, perhaps right now, as climate change impacts are increasing, they build resilience against these impacts that we're seeing. One of the ways National Marine Sanctuaries help wildlife survive is by creating safe zones where species can migrate if waters get too warm in their traditional habitats. By protecting these underwater places, what we're really doing is creating these stepping stones in our oceans where populations can shift to escape places where warming waters may be happening so that they have these safer havens where they can thrive and grow. The Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary, if established, would fill a critical gap between the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, which protects the six nautical miles of water surrounding the National Park, and the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, which protects coastal waters to the north, including the Monterey and San Francisco regions. One of the reasons this area is so important for so many living things is because of its complex underwater geography, which fosters a process known as upwelling. Upwelling creates a kind of ocean gathering place for plankton and other important sources of food. The lands underwater, the seafloor underwater, is not dissimilar to what we see on land. So you can think of, you know, around the Appalachians, we have sort of a ridge and valley system. While it's not exactly the same, there are these elevations and drops on the ocean floor. It centralizes this phytoplankton and these these small parts of the food chain that then fish feed on, then larger predators come in, and it attracts just this web of life. The birds come in, the fish come in, then the larger marine mammals come in, and They become these amazing feeding areas that are some of the most essential places to protect. They generate this type of growth that really sustains life in the ocean and other areas. Barmeyer witnessed this web of life firsthand when she visited the Channel Islands last year as part of a five-day educational cruise organized by the National Parks Conservation Association. I've always wanted to go to Channel Islands because it is home to the most well-protected, intact marine protected areas of any national park. The first morning on the ship when we woke up, 
it was probably the best wake up call of my life. The the ship captain had told us they'll they'll never wake us up before seven a.m. unless something is going on. And, and you typically think like, oh, that's that means an emergency. Around six forty five, we get a wake up call to come to the bow of the ship because the ship is surrounded by humpback whales, and these whales are using the ship to corral their food. <laughs> it was one of the most amazing wildlife experiences I have ever seen in my life. So with the whales corralling the food comes the dolphins, comes the California sea lion. So there's like this ripple effect and it was like heads were popping up of these different animals. You're seeing dorsal fins and tails going in and out of the water. And it's just then the humpback whales were breaching, like meaning they're jumping out of the water and doing flips. And all I could think about is this is the first morning. I can't wait for the next morning. <laughs> so. Barmeyer also emphasizes that experiences like these drive enormous amounts of tourism. Who wouldn't want to be in that boat? There's studies that they've done in this area that it will strengthen this tourism-based economy of this area of California by generating an estimated $23 million in economic activity, while also creating 600 new jobs in this area. So just by creating this designation, by establishing this protected area, you're, you're giving a boost to this local economy. One of the most important ways a national marine sanctuary would benefit the region and its economy would be to prevent the kind of catastrophe that happened here in 1969 from happening again. We're confident that it will stop the threat of oil drilling expansion in that area off the coast of California. And this, of course, has been a major goal of generations of Chumash people and thousands of their allies. Paul Michel knows a lot about managing ocean habitat. He served as superintendent of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary for more than 13 years before moving to his current role as regional policy coordinator for NOAA's West Coast Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. It's in this capacity that he's been reviewing documents and drawing up different alternatives for what a Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary could include and how it would be managed. It's no small job, but he doesn't seem to mind. It's my favorite thing to talk about these days. I start our conversation by asking specifically about the state of oil and gas drilling in this part of the Pacific. Although many of the oil drilling platforms in the region are in the process of being decommissioned, several in the Santa Barbara area are still active. How these wells are handled is one of the details that still needs to be determined through the designation process. In the proposed sanctuary, the proposed Chumash Heritage National Sanctuary, there are both active wells and wells that are being decommissioned um, and removed and the platforms associated with them and their infrastructure in the years ahead. And so, you know, backing up to the, the purposes of a national sanctuary, one might 
and conclude because West Coast sanctuaries prohibit oil and gas exploration and development that it may not seem compatible with the National Marine Sanctuary. But we do have examples within our program, especially in the Gulf of Mexico with Flower Gardens National Marine Sanctuary, where there are active oil and gas platforms that essentially are carved out or included within the boundary, but exempted from sanctuary regulations. And so working with the Department of Interior about how to address those active and decommissioned sites within the boundaries of the new sanctuary. Proponents of the sanctuary hope the designation will both protect the region from new oil and gas development, as well as encourage the industry to decommission and repurpose active wells after their leases expire. The resources at stake clearly merit protection. According to Michelle, NOAA recommended moving ahead on the sanctuary proposal late last year for three main reasons. The reasons why NOAA decided to move forward with this designation are kind of three main reasons. One, the the ecosystem, the offshore, onshore resources are nationally significant. It's an amazing, abundant, productive, biodiverse area. That's, That's very clear. Secondly, when we heard this pretty loud and clear in the scoping, but we received over 22,000 comments during the scoping period. Uh, we heard pretty loud and clear that this stretch of coast and ocean has a lot of challenging issues, and there's a great need for a community-based, ecosystem-based planning forum for you know, public participation and agency participation to figure all this stuff out, right? And that's what sanctuaries do. Sanctuaries are adaptive management and very transparent and, and have a very scientifically based and publicly you know, participate based you know, management approach. And then the third reason was this is the first tribally nominated sanctuary in our system. So this is an opportunity to not only highlight and celebrate indigenous culture on this coast, but more deliberately involve them in collaborative management of the sanctuary, bringing traditional ecological knowledge, cultural values into the management of this sanctuary. Although there are examples in the marine sanctuary system of federal collaboration and engagement with tribes, including along the Olympic coastline of Washington State and the waters that surround the Polynesian islands of American Samoa, Michelle notes that every designation is unique and how members of the tribes will want to engage in management issues is still an open question. Well, across the federal government, there's examples with the National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, as well as the National Marine Fisheries Service, another part of NOAA. And those agreements typically focus around traditional uses, traditional harvests, you know, subsistence use around take or possession of animals, right, and or their parts. And so it's a kind of a subset of, of management. I think something will emerge similar here because I don't know that the tribes will necessarily want to be engaged in all aspects of day-to-day sanctuary management, but that's what we're exploring, right? What, what are their interests? Where do they want to be co-managers on what particular issues are most interesting to them? Michelle knows well that management involves a whole range of tasks. The day-to-day management of sanctuary, because I did it for almost 14 years, it's everything from running a facility or visitor center to running a, a research vessel or a patrol boat and personnel management and budgeting. And I think there's going to be, you know, an obvious subset of what a sanctuary manages that will be of particular interest to the tribes. Not to say that all that's not on the table. I just think that there's going to be sort of a sweet spot of those management issues where tribes really want to have a, an active role. 
Overall, public support for the marine sanctuary and for tribal co-management has been strong, although there have been detractors. According to Violet Sage Walker, much of the opposition to the sanctuary has come, unsurprisingly, from the oil and gas industry. Some in the fishing industry have also opposed the designation, but she stresses that people at sustainable fishing operations have supported the sanctuary and understand that marine sanctuaries have a positive effect on fish populations. A study released just last month in the Journal of Science found a significant positive effect on commercial fishing at Papohanao Mokuokea Marine National Monument northwest of Hawaii, the largest marine protected area in the world. Specifically, the study documented a 50% increase in yellowfin catch and a 10% increase in big-eye tuna catch just outside of the monument's boundaries. Studies have also found improved fish populations off the coast of California. I would like to make sure that we separate out that there are sustainable fishermen and sustainable fisheries who do not oppose marine sanctuaries, who support science-based responsible use of our oceans and protections. There are people who will generally oppose conservation efforts. And here locally, this idea that we are somehow imposing our will or the federal government's will on local fishermen is absolutely nonsense because all the fishermen fish in national marine sanctuaries currently. Ever since the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary has been in operation, the fishing in the sanctuary, commercial fishing, has um, gone up in quantity, in value, in price per pound. And so every year that it's been in operation, the fishing and the quality of fish coming out of the sanctuaries is improving. Paul Michel emphasizes that this line of opposition is a moot point because marine sanctuaries don't place any restrictions on the fishing industry. We don't regulate fishing and don't see a need to do so. It wasn't, it was not even something that was brought up in public comment. Sanctuaries essentially, if you look at it, they're kind of like a fishing park, right? Because they, <laughs> they don't regulate fishing, but sanctuaries protect the ecosystem to allow for a vibrant and viable fishery, right? Both recreational and commercial. Walker notes another big reason why tribal engagement in the process would only help the industry. Shumash people love to eat fish. <laughs> right now, public comment is officially closed. As soon as next month, however, NOAA will release a series of formal documents, including a draft management plan, a draft environmental impact statement, and proposed boundaries and regulations, and the public will be able to weigh in on all of it. We have gone through the thousands and thousands of comments. We have a team of writers that's drafting a draft management plan that will have maybe 10 different action plans within it. We're going to push to have that all out for public review by the end of this calendar year. Um, and then we'll do another round of public comment on those draft documents. For those who want to follow the ongoing process more closely, Violet Sage Walker's Coalition of Advocates have a website shumashsanctuary.org, where people can get more information and sign up for email updates on the public comment periods and other news. That's C-H-U-M-A-S-H sanctuary.org. We'll include that link in the show notes. I mentioned to Michelle that Walker had felt bad his team had to go through all those thousands of comments, and she had wondered if she should send flowers. He responds without hesitation. Absolutely. I'll take, I'll take some flowers from Violet. But then, after we chat a bit longer, he reconsiders. Instead of flowers, she could just send me some fish. 
Walker certainly hopes the joint efforts ultimately mean there will be more fish to offer, and she again brings her family's longer view to the work. My father coined this term thriveability. He always said that we should get rid of sustainability and we should stop using that word because we don't want to sustain the the 95% loss of large fish species and all the endangered and threatened animals. We should not sustain that. We should go back to thinking about thriveability and about building the healthiest ecosystem for all these animals. And just in my generation, in less than 40 years, we can no longer find steelhead and the coho salmon in our creeks. We can no longer drink the water coming out of our creeks. I was um, born and raised up in the Avila area, and we drank water from the creek in the backyard. I mean, you just can't do that anymore. Walker emphasizes that over the past year, the Chumash people have lost many of their elders, and that over the course of the past four decades, those elders made the significance of her preservation work clear. We're going to be losing this whole generation of elders. And the one thing that they've done is they've trained us to keep doing the work and keep fighting to protect our sites and our culture. And that's the difference between us and them is they'll be gone. You know, politicians like local electeds, they will be gone and we will still be here saying the same thing. The Secret Lives of Parks is a production of the National Parks Conservation Association. Episode 12, Making Things Whole, was produced by me, Jennifer Eric, with help from Todd Christopher and Bev Stanton. Original theme music by Chad Fisher. Learn more about the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary at chumashsanctuary.org. Learn more about this podcast and listen to the rest of our stories at thesecretlivesofparks.org. For more than a century, the National Parks Conservation Association has been protecting and enhancing America's national parks for present and future generations. With more than 1.6 million members and supporters, NPCA is the nation's only independent, nonpartisan advocacy organization dedicated to protecting national parks. And we're proud of it, too. You can join the fight to preserve places like the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary and Channel Islands National Park. Learn more and join us at npca.org. Papa Hanau Mokuo Papa <laughs> Papa <laughs>